not quite as Isaiah envisioned, be able to run and not grow weary. Attempts to alter the human body are nothing new in sports, of course. It's been more than a century since Charles Edouard Brown Sequard, the French physiologist called the father of steroids, injected himself with an extract derived from the testicles of a guinea pig and a dog. Athletes have been irradiated and surgically implanted with monkey glands. They have weight trained with special regimens designed to increase mitochondria in muscle cells and have lived in special trailers pressurized to simulate high altitudes. For endurance athletes, the drug of choice for the last decade has been EPO, a man-made version of a hormone released by the kidneys that stimulates the production of red blood cells so that the blood can carry extra oxygen. With EPO, the red blood cells can get so thick that the blood curdles, turns into a syrupy ooze. In the early days of the drug, elite cyclists started dropping dead across their handlebars, their hearts unable to pump the sludge running through their veins. Some sports, like powerlifting, have had to give in and set up drug-free or natural divisions. In other words, you could almost say that it makes no difference whether athletes of the future are genetically engineered that the damage is already done with conventional drugs, the line already crossed. You could almost say that, but not quite. Because, in fact, in the last couple of years, the testing's gotten better. The new World Anti-Doping Agency has caught enough offenders to throw a scare into dirty athletes and some heart into clean ones. Some distance athletes who had decided to retire because they felt they couldn't compete have gone back into training. A new group of post-steroid shot-putters and discus hurlers have proved their point by winning meets with shorter throws than the records of a decade ago. And both athlete and fan remain able to draw the line in their minds. No one thought Ben Johnson's 1988 dash record meant anything once the Olympic lab found steroids in his system. It was erased from the record books. He was banned from competition. Against the odds, sports just manages to stay real. Somatic gene therapy is, in other words, much like medicine. You take an existing patient with an existing condition, and you, in essence, try to convince her cells to manufacture the medicine she needs. Such a therapy doesn't attempt to change every cell in her body, just the specific types of cells that would be transplanted, the cells of her lung tissue, say. And if she has children, the modified genes aren't passed along. When she dies, they die. Somatic gene therapy could be misused. Just as athletes, for instance, misuse medicines to improve performance so they could inject viruses with genetic materials designed to make their blood carry more oxygen or their muscles grow larger. But, as we shall see later, this is a kind of misuse we know how to deal with, or at least have a frame of reference for. No one I've ever talked to out and out opposes somatic gene therapy, and most wish it well. The first trials on a variety of diseases began in 1991. The first real cures were reported in 2001 and 2002. As our understanding of the human genome grows, somatic gene therapy may become more effective. It's not a silver bullet against disease, but it is a bullet, one more item of ordinance in the medical arsenal. Germline genetic engineering, and that's the other technical term, on the other hand, is something very novel indeed. Germ here refers not to microbes, but to the egg and sperm cells, the germ cells of the human being, the basic cells from which we germinate. Scientists intent on genetic engineering would probably start with a fertilized embryo a week or so old. They would tease apart the cells of that embryo, and then, selecting one, they would add to, delete, or modify some of its genes. They could also insert artificial chromosomes containing pre-designed genes. 
They would then take the cell, place it inside an egg whose nucleus had been removed, and implant the resulting new embryo inside a woman. The embryo would, if all went according to plan, grow into a genetically engineered child. His genes would be pushing out proteins to meet the particular choices made by his parents and by the companies and clinicians they bought the genes from. Instead of coming solely from the combination of his parents and thus the combination of their parents and so on back through time, those genes could come from any other person or any other plant or animal or out of the thin blue sky. And once implanted, they will pass to his children and on into time. Does it sound far-fetched? We began doing it with animals, mice, in 1978, and we've managed the trick with most of the obvious mammals, except one. And the only thing holding us back is a thin tissue of ethical guidelines, which some scientists and politicians are working hard to overturn. You could, theoretically, use this germline technique to prevent genetic disease. You could remove from the embryonic DNA the mistake that causes the genes to produce the cystic fibrosis proteins. But this is unnecessary. As we shall see later, if you've already isolated fertilized embryos, you can simply screen them to see which ones will naturally develop cystic fibrosis and implant the others instead. No, the reason for performing germline genetic engineering is precisely to improve human beings, to modify the genes affecting everything from obesity to intelligence, eye color to gray matter. Going for perfection, in the words of DNA pioneer James Watson, who adds, who wants an ugly baby? To make germline engineering work, however, you need one more piece of technology, the ability to clone people. Cloning is the one part of this vocabulary that most people already know and the one thing that scares them. In a way, that's a mistake. Cloning people is a sideshow, a parlor trick. Who besides rich freaks and perhaps the grieving parents of dead children would want exact copies? The answer is people who want to do germline genetic engineering. The technique of modifying genes is hard. The success rate is low. If you had more embryos, your odds would improve. That's what the people who cloned Dolly the sheep were aiming for, easy access to more embryos so they could, quote, transform, unquote, the animals. Here's how Richard Hayes, the director of the Center for Genetics and Society and an opponent of genetic engineering, describes it. It's very difficult to get a desired new gene into a fertilized egg on a single try. To use germline engineering as a routine procedure, you'd start by creating a large culture of embryonic cells derived from a fertilized egg, douse these with viruses carrying the desired new gene, and then implant one of the eggs where the modifications took. Without embryo cloning, he adds, no commercial designer babies. And here's another leading commentator, the Princeton biologist Lee Silver. Without cloning, genetic engineering is simply science fiction. But with cloning, genetic engineering moves into the realm of reality. Again, it's not as if cloning is far off or impossibly difficult. A few flimsy pieces of legislation prevent reproductive cloning in most but not all Western nations, and they haven't been enough to stop at least two teams of rogue doctors and one UFO cultist from taking a crack at it. We've been cloning frogs for four decades. Dolly was the first mammal cloned from an adult cell, but not the last. But all this work will require one large change in our current way of doing business. Instead of making babies by making love, we will have to move conception to the laboratory. You need to have the embryo out where you can work on it to make the necessary copies, try to add or delete genes, and then implant the one that seems likely to turn out best. 
All of this is new and unsettling enough that rather than confront it head-on, people often look for a way out. A common escape hatch, especially for liberals, lies in the politically palatable notion that genes aren't all that important anyhow. We're the products of our environment, so who cares how much cutting and splicing the lab boys do? Thankfully, there's some truth in that observation. President Bill Clinton marked the completion of the Human Genome Project by declaring, Today we're learning the language in which God created life, but in fact, creation was written in many alphabets. As Francis Collins, the director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, wrote at the time, we've seen nothing in recent studies to suggest that nature's role in development is larger or nurtures smaller than we previously thought. Not even conditions that seem straightforwardly genetic follow some unvarying Mendelian score. Sickle cell anemia, for instance, which was formerly considered the classic single gene disease, turns out to come in several strengths and varieties. In some ways, in fact, the sequencing of the human genome, heralded as the dawn of the genetic age, may really have marked the sunset of a certain kind of genetic innocence. Instead of finding the expected 100,000 genes, the two teams of competing researchers managed to identify just 30,000. This total is still being debated, but whatever the final count, we have barely twice as many genes as the fruit fly and only slightly more than the mustard weed, which makes it unlikely that genes work quite as simply as the standard models insisted. Even if you could perfect the process, simple physics would place some limits on how much you could modify humans. If you were a nine-foot-tall person, says Stuart Newman, a researcher at New York Medical College, the bone density would have to increase to such a degree that it might outstrain the body's capability to, say, handle calcium. All of which sounds comforting. Maybe there's not so much to worry about after all. Maybe it's a problem for the grandkids. In fact, however, all these qualifications mask the larger truth. Genes do matter. A lot. That fact may not fit every ideology, but it does fit the data. Endless studies of twins raised separately make very clear that virtually any trait you can think of is, to some degree, linked to our genes. Intelligence? The most recent estimates show that half or more of the variability in human intelligence comes from heredity. Even the most determined opponents of genetic engineering concede as much. David King, the British editor of Gen Ethics News, writes that genetic determinism as an ideology is wrong and pernicious, but that doesn't mean that there aren't some completely straightforward, fairly simple, or only slightly complex genetic determinations out there. Another opponent, Richard Hayes, says, my guess is over the next decade we'll find the full spectrum of possible relations between traits and genes. Some traits will be strongly influenced by genes, Others will have little relation to genes at all. Others will be influenced by genes in some environments, but not in others. On balance, the techno-eugenic agenda would move forward unless people stop it. Stuart Newman, a few moments after explaining why a nine-foot-tall person simply wouldn't work, leaned across his lab bench and added, But could you engineer higher intelligence, increased athletic ability? I have no doubt you could make such changes. In other words, this new world can't be wished away. And in fact, every time you turn your back, it creeps a little closer. Gallops, actually, a technology growing and spreading as fast as the Internet grew and spread. One moment you've sort of heard of it, the next moment it's everywhere. Consider what happened with plants. A decade ago, university research farms were growing small plots of genetically modified grain and vegetables. Sometimes activists who didn't like what they were doing would come and rip the plants up one by one. Then... 
All of a sudden, in the mid-1990s, before anyone had paid any real attention, farmers had planted half the corn and soybean fields in America with transgenic seed. Since 1994, farmers in this country have grown 3.5 trillion genetically manipulated plants. Or consider animals. Since they first cloned frogs a generation ago, researchers have learned to make copies of almost everything. It's become so standard that they now need a good gimmick to get any press attention. Texas A&M, for instance, recently called in reporters to show off the first menagerie of cloned animals, cows, goats, and pigs. If cloning needed a poster child, it got one in February 2001, when another team of researchers at Texas A&M unveiled CC, the first cat clone. The work, funded by a West Coast financier who actually set out to clone his dog, Missy, was not easy. CC was the only surviving animal from 87 cloned embryos. On the other hand, according to a university spokesman, she is cute as a button. Under more controlled conditions, animal cloning is moving steadily from the lab to the factory. Just as with plants, the techniques are increasingly reliable enough to let scientists scale up production. You can order cloned cattle over the net. A high school student working at a Wisconsin firm managed to clone a cow. Early in 2002, a California company debuted a chip that automates the process of nuclear transfer, the key step in cloning. Whereas now the transfer requires hours of painstaking work under a microscope, the chip should help make cloning cheap and easy enough for companies to mass-produce identical copies. A North Carolina firm has figured out a similar process for bulk-growing chicken embryos, which may soon allow billions of clones to be produced each year to supply chicken farms with birds that all grow at the same rate, have the same amount of meat, and taste the same. These same technologies could be used to mass-produce human embryos. Obviously, it would make everyone's life easier, said a spokesman for Advanced Cell Technology, the pioneer in human cloning research. But remember, for humans, cloning is a stepping stone. Frank Purdue might be thrilled to see billions of identical chickens, but for his own kid, he'd perhaps choose a different nose. Genetic modification is the key, and here, too, animals are showing the way. Canadian scientists, to give just one of a thousand examples, have built what they call an enviropig. Three of them, actually, named Jacques, Gordy, and Wayne, after the hockey legends. Each of the pig cells contained mouse and bacteria DNA designed to cut down on the amount of phosphorus in their manure, thereby enable pork producers to raise more hogs per acre. Such processes have become so standard that more and more people are getting into the act. In 1999, an artist named Eduardo Koch persuaded a laboratory to rig him up a bunny whose DNA contains genes from a phosphorescent jellyfish. If you hold Alba up to a black light, she glows green.